Hey everybody, this is episode 55 of Artist Soapbox. Hello and welcome to Artist Soapbox, a podcast featuring triangle area artists talking about their work, their plans, their manifestos. I am Tamara Kassane. This is a really special episode in which we answer a question submitted by a listener concerning troubling things in rehearsal. To give you some context, if you're new to Artist Soapbox, earlier this year, in September of 2018, I put up essentially an advice column on the Artist Soapbox website. I invited listeners to submit anonymous questions to be answered on the podcast, and I've answered three of these questions myself thus far, focused on prioritizing our own creative work, finding a community, and bumping up against someone who wants you to get a, quote, real job. I'll put these episodes in the show notes as well as a link to submit your own question if you'd like to take the action of listening or submitting. When I received an Ask the Soapbox question about speaking up when witnessing troubling things in rehearsal, I thought it would be most helpful to seek out the wisdom of other local experts. So in the first half of this episode, I speak with Ashley Popio, the Artistic Director of the Women's Theatre Festival. She offers insight from a theater practitioner and leadership perspective, and we talk about best practices for directors. In the second half of this episode, I speak with Elizabeth Johnson, a trauma educator with Spark Equity. Elizabeth shares her wisdom about bullying and the impact of healthy and unhealthy practices in our creative spaces. Both of these experts offer practical tools and actions you might take if you are a witness to this behavior if you're the target, and if you're in a position of directorial power and would like some new tools to use in the rehearsal room. I was really struck by the compassion and hope in these conversations. And I was really struck by my own vulnerability in these conversations, which makes this episode a little scary to share. Thank you, Ashley, and thank you, Elizabeth. And thank you for listening. This is a longer episode than usual, but I purposely made the choice not to divide the conversation into two separate episodes. You don't need to listen to the entire thing in one sitting, and my hope is that you'll come back and re-listen to sections multiple times, but I wanted to keep them together, because for many reasons, I feel like this is the most important episode, perhaps the most useful episode, that Artist Soapbox has released thus far. I'm curious if you agree. Again, you'll see links in the show notes. Thanks so much, and here we go. And now it's time for a question from a listener on Ask the Soapbox. Dear Soapy, I have a question about speaking up when I witness troubling things in rehearsal. I'm relatively new to theater, but already in my experience, I have seen people, actors, designers, stage managers, shouted at and minimized, usually by the director. I have seen cases where people ask a question and the director treats them as though they are inconveniencing everyone and slowing things down. The person who asked the question is then considered high maintenance. I have heard it stated directly and implied indirectly that we're all adults and that the onus is on the actor, designer, crew member to speak up if they have an issue. 
one glance at the news headlines makes it pretty clear that for most people, it is hard to speak up against authority for a wide variety of reasons. Why does this happen? What should we do when it happens? How do we stop it from happening? I recently read this quote. When you work with human beings, being trauma-informed is not optional. I feel like people pay lip service to that notion, but I have not seen it put into practice. How can we apply a trauma-informed approach to the way we make art? Signed, Hoping for Healthier Outcomes. Hoping for Healthier Outcomes. I'm here with Ashley Popio, the Artistic Director of Women's Theater Festival, to address some of these questions. Hi, Ashley. Hi, Tamara. Thanks for including me. This question is very intriguing, and I'm excited to answer it. Should we take these questions kind of one by one? Would that make sense? I think that makes a great deal of sense. Okay, let's do it. So the first question is, why does this happen? Well, sometimes people don't know that communicating in a way that's loud or dismissive or rushed is not okay because they were raised in a household where they experienced that type of communication. And so to them, it feels normal. Your reader asked about trauma. And we also have to remember that many of the people who are in power in theater were also victims of trauma. So they could have been growing up in a household where there were dangers like that. And that's how they learned to communicate. So they might literally not know that that type of communication is not okay. So it could be from the family of origin, but I think also it could be the way we learn to make art, that people who were raised in a certain theatrical environment, that a director is the person who does the shouting and everyone is everyone should obey that person. That's an outdated model, but it's one that's been pervasive for many, many years. So one of the things that they said is why. And you made the excellent point earlier when we were discussing this, that to some extent, it's a rushed process. And a director can be filled with fear and insecurity that they're not doing their job well, that they're not going fast enough, that they won't make their deadlines. And so sometimes that fear, insecurity and stress comes out in ways that are uncomfortable for other people, like yelling, like rushing, like ignoring questions or belittling people. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean it's okay, but that might be why. Mm -hmm. So what should we do when this happens? Well, I think it's important to remind actors and designers that they always have the power to leave. If they are in a situation that feels emotionally dangerous to them, that is just as important as a situation that feels physically dangerous to them. I did a study recently about local theater companies, and I can tell you that there are 44 of them here in this area. So if you have a problem with one director, you do not need to work with that director ever again. If you have experience with a local theater company where you felt uncomfortable or where your feelings weren't trusted or you weren't listened to, you never have to go back. Even if it's a paid gig, eight of our local theater companies pay. So if one of them is not treating you well, you can go. I think that people, especially women, forget that they always have the power to leave. 
Um, here in North Carolina, even if you're a contracted worker, we live in a right to work state. There are many reasons why that's not usually a great thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but in this particular instance, you can just go. Mm-hmm. It means you won't get paid, but it also means that you won't be enduring something that makes you feel disrespected. Also, by your leaving, if you tell why you leave, it can be a really powerful statement. Um, I'm going to talk about an instance when I was a little girl, actually, working in Wisconsin in one of my first theatrical gigs. It was maybe the third thing I'd ever done professionally. I was playing Amaryllis and the Music Man with mm-hmm. my little braids that were swinging as I played the piano. And our director was from a Hollywood background. He'd actually done movies before, and he would yell at us and use swear words and be angry. Like, his face would turn red, I remember. And our leading man quit. He quit, and he wrote a long letter, and I know it was a long letter, talking about how it's not okay to treat particularly child actors in that way because the director read it to us as a company to explain to us why the leading man had left. And then the director apologized and changed his behavior for the rest of the run. So it's really powerful to use your option to leave Now, that doesn't have to be the first thing that you do in a situation. Um, For example, um, I was trained in anti-bullying techniques when I was teaching elementary school. And one of the most important things that you can do in a scenario like your reader was describing, I keep saying reader, of course it's a listener, (laughs) (laughs) like your listener was describing, is to support the victim. And you can either do that in the moment if you're feeling brave. You can say... Don't yell at her. Mm. Or he was just asking a question. Can you treat him with respect? But if you're not feeling particularly brave or you can't risk your own emotional health, you can still support the victim after the fact. You can go up to them later in the afternoon and say something like, hey, I saw what that director said to you. That was not okay. How are you feeling? Are you all right? Mm. And that kind of after-the-moment support can also help a victim feel like they're not crazy, to, to feel hurt that other people witnessed and were on their side. And also it can be a way to identify yourself as an ally in this situation so that the victim doesn't feel alone. Mm-hmm. And you might even be able to begin talking about a strategy to help the victim continue to feel okay and safe, or even to potentially confront the person who's been dishing out the abuse. Now, one of the things that you said, Tamara, when we were talking about this earlier, was it's possible to go over their heads. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Sure. I I, So one of the things that you're talking about, Ashley, I think is the power of other people in the room advocating for... uh, for the person the director is minimizing or making feel uncomfortable. But so the people in the room can be advocates, but there are often people outside of the room who hold power, who can have a direct conversation with the director. And those people uh, would include the producer or the artistic director. Um, The stage manager is another option as well. 
those people are the folks who hold the purse strings, who also hire the director, and who are ultimately responsible for the production and have a vested interest in a healthy rehearsal space and a good experience for everyone. So as an artistic director, I think you might be able to address what you would do if somebody approached you about this type of behavior. I actually have a literal example that I can (laughs) use. I won't mention any names, but we did have a production wherein a young lady who had been a trauma victim came to me privately and said, okay, the way that the director in this particular production is trying to get us to speed up is she's clapping while we talk. And loud noises are triggering for me, and it's making me really, really anxious. For whatever reason, she didn't feel comfortable telling this to the director. And the director definitely was not trying to make anybody feel uncomfortable. But when she came to me, I, of course, acted immediately to resolve the situation because as the artistic director of this company... It's particularly important to me that everybody feels comfortable and wants to come back and work with us again if we become known as a company where it's uncomfortable or even emotionally dangerous to work for us, no one will return. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So an artistic director does have a vested interest, just like you said, Tamara, in making sure that everybody is comfortable. I was able to approach this director, tell her that that technique was making her actors uncomfortable, and she stopped immediately. Mm So you do have the power to go over the heads of your director if you're not comfortable speaking with them directly. Something else that I'm just thinking of now, um, when I'm in a moment that is feeling emotionally fraught and things are starting to get heated or uncomfortable, I do think there's always that option for someone in the room to suggest that everybody take a break, take a breath. Or ask a question that is as neutral as possible. So, for example, if I am thinking in my mind that everyone thinks that I am inconveniencing this process by being slow, I have the option of asking that very question. Am I slowing things down? Do you feel like this is throwing off our rehearsal schedule tonight? And if it is, then we can have that conversation in the moment. And if it's not, then we can also have that conversation I know, and I'm just going <laughs> to I'm going to use the parenting example here. Um, sometimes I find myself getting very frustrated with my children, and it's not until they draw my attention to that that I know that it's happening, because I am distracted and stressed and anxious about five thousand things. And until my daughter says, "Mom, what's the matter? What's wrong?" Then I realize that maybe I'm speaking a little bit too loudly. Maybe I'm not using my kindest words. Maybe I'm acting in a way that is not actually supporting a very positive interaction with my children. And I've seen that happen in the rehearsal room as well, where it's just a matter of not knowing and everybody needs to kind of take a reality check. So it is always possible for anyone in the room to say, hey, let's take five and let's recalibrate and come back together. If you need to cover for that, actors understand smoke breaks. <laughs> <laughs> smoke breaks, pee breaks, any of that. That's another reason why you can approach um, the stage manager. The stage manager will be your break buddy. If you need someone to step in when things are getting tense and announce break time, mm-hmm. the stage manager is definitely your your friend in your foxhole. Yeah, that's that's great. 
We also talked about having uh, an anonymous reporting option. So if you don't want to talk to a person, stage manager, artistic director, the director, the producer, what other option might you have? Well, the Women's Theater Festival has an anonymous reporting um, option right on our website. And there's no reason why other theater companies couldn't do that, too, because it's very simple. You just have a Google form that doesn't ask for anybody's name and says, what do you need to tell us? And then that's anonymous. However, if you're working with a company that doesn't have that option, all you have to do is make a fake email account and send an email to the info at because every every theater company has a email address that's for the theater company as a whole. So if you need to tell somebody something and you absolutely can't have your name attached to it, you're always able to make a fake email and send it to the theater company itself. So for the Women's Theater Festival... Is there a designated person to respond to that kind of an anonymous feedback? So it goes into our company email, and the two people who check that are Johanna Maynard Edwards and myself. Mm -hmm. And usually it's me who responds to that sort of thing. Um, I would say in all the incidents that we've had thus far, it has been me who has responded. Mm -hmm. Often I go out in person and just watch a rehearsal from then on. Sometimes even just having my presence physically in the room is enough to make everybody behave a little better. Mm -hmm. But um, also if I see things that are definitely not okay, then I have the power to step up and say, we're going to do this differently from now on. And how might you approach a director who's kind of gone off the rails a little bit? What are some things that you might say to that person? So we try and put buffers in place. We have people from the festival itself come and stay in the room so that the festival always has a presence. Often just being watched is enough to get a director to dial it back a little bit. But there has been an incident where we also went in and kind of saved people, where there were designers in an uncomfortable directorial situation who said, we're going to quit. And we said, okay, we support that. We will take over in your absence and you leave this uncomfortable situation, go where you feel safe. We have nothing against you. We will definitely work with you again. And sometimes it is that the person is literally abusive and horrible. And sometimes it's that two different personalities just don't fit so badly that they need somebody to intervene in order to make everybody feel safe. Mm-hmm. So I think the last question was, how do we prevent this from happening in the first place? And one of the things that I've found has worked really well in my own directorial circumstances is starting every rehearsal and ending every rehearsal with an emotional check-in. This is a technique I learned from Bear Theater. So thanks, Bear, where we just have everybody in the room circle up and, first of all, say how they feel coming into the rehearsal space. Everybody has stuff going on in their lives. And if you don't take a moment to acknowledge, then they'll be carrying that through the whole rehearsal. Or they'll be quietly whispering it to six different people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that takes up rehearsal time and space as well. So if you just get everybody to check in before they go into rehearsal, not only does that promote company unity and remind everyone in the room that everyone they're working with is a person who has emotions, who has history, who is coming into the room with things that happen to them in their life today, it 
It triggers our empathy. But also, then when we check in with them again at the end of the night, you can see how your directorial techniques affected their personal mood. Mm. If you do things right, what you should hear when you go around the circle is, oh, that was such a tough rehearsal, but I feel good about it. I feel like I I did some good work and I felt supported and this is such a good team. But if you do something that's not quite right, you might hear people say things like, oh, that delay was frustrating and I sat here for two hours before I got used and I could have been home with my kids. And when you get that kind of feedback, it's possible to adjust and attack it from a different angle the next time you all get together. It's also possible to respond in the moment so that people don't go home with that frustration on their shoulders. If they say, for example, you didn't use me for two hours, you can say, I'm so sorry. I I wish I'd planned better. That's totally my fault. Or you can say something like, "Um, thank you for using that time to review your lines. I noticed that you were doing that and I really appreciate you continuing to work despite the fact that I didn't plan as well as I possibly could have. And that way, your actor leaves you instead of being frustrated and angry with the process feeling like they were a valuable contributor and that they had been heard Mm -hmm. and that you realize that you are also not perfect and you will attempt to not make that same mistake again. So having emotional check-ins both at the beginning and at the end of your rehearsal, I would recommend that to any director and any process. Yes, I love the idea of an open and opening and closing ritual of any kind It sounds also like you are setting up a situation in which people feel comfortable communicating how they're feeling uh, to you and that that will be received in a supportive way. For example, I'm thinking, wow, would I be able at the end of a rehearsal to say, I feel like I sat around for two hours and I could have been at home with my kids. That would take a lot of comfort with the person in the front of the room for me to say that because my fear would be like this reader slash listener said that then I was high maintenance and I wasn't part of the team and I wasn't, you know what I mean? I thought I was above everybody else or something like all of the things that I would be worried that people would be thinking about me that I wouldn't be hired again. So I think it's really part of the director's responsibility to set up a room in which that kind of feedback will be, is welcomed, is welcomed, expected as part of the responsibility of the cast. Like, look, I know what when I've directed in the past, I've very clearly said, look, I'm going to do the best that I can here. I hope that you will tell me if I am not creating the best environment. These are my goals. These are my expectations. And if I'm not meeting yours, let's have a conversation and just keep uh, repeating that over and over and over again, that we're all in this together. This is not you know, emergency surgery, so we can kind of take a breath here. Um, and, and just trying to realize that the product is important, but the process is, for me at least, the most important part of this entire art-making endeavor. And if we're not feeling good by spending all this time together in rehearsal every single night for weeks and weeks and weeks, then why are we doing this? <laughs> you know what I mean? So... um So yeah, how else do we stop this from happening? Well, I would encourage uh, my fellow directors to be collaborators, not dictators. Yes. Um, 
I had a moment earlier this year where I posted a question to the world at large at Facebook, and I had a gentleman who is older than I am contact me privately and say, we need to work on your confidence. You are coming across as a, as a person who, who doesn't have confidence. And I, I responded to him with, how is asking a question and getting the input of my fellow artists revealing a lack of confidence, if anything? As an artist, it takes more confidence to ask for the input and feedback of other people that you care about and trust and to take their opinions and their viewpoints into account and to assimilate it into your own method of of creating rather than to go in and say, my way is the only way and I know what's right and everybody else better step off. That's an insecure way of being a leader. A good leader checks in with their troops, knows what's going on in their lives, cares about how they feel, and empowers them to be the best creators that they can possibly be. And if you're a director who isn't doing it that way, if you're a director who's a dictator who's listening to this podcast, I would ask you to try the other way and see how it feels. You might be surprised. People have really good, important things to add. And if you're willing to accept even a few of those, everyone will be so much more interested in working with you. Your art will improve. The final product will be better. It's worth a try. Please give it a try. (laughs) Yes. Yes. And I wonder also if it would be helpful to have – actors talk about directors that they really enjoy working with and to promote those people, even word of mouth. I think it can be wonderful to have actors conversing with each other socially saying, Hey, you know, I worked with so-and-so and it was so great to work with her because she did these things and it was wonderful. And I will work with her any chance I get and giving that feedback to the director. You know what I really appreciate? Because one interesting thing about directors is they don't often see other directors work. Right. And so, you know, I, I know that if you if, if one is a director for a very long period of time, it's unlikely that you're also an actor at that same time. So you only know your own way of doing things. And I think the more we can talk about positive rehearsal experiences and ways of making work and spreading the word and sharing those resources, it might infiltrate in ways that we don't even intend at this particular point, just sharing that information. Interesting. Wouldn't it be fun if we could have guest directors just come and sit in and watch other directors work? Mm-hmm. Huh. Maybe I'll do that. I think it, I think it could be <laughs> enormously helpful because I know I've, I've spoken to directors who feel really isolated and lonely. They're like, I don't know how to do this. I don't really know how to learn how to do this. And how am I supposed to learn from other people who are doing it? Because we're all by ourselves, you know? And so there could be lots of really interesting ways of approaching that. I think there are opportunities there. Well, let's start the ball rolling, Tamara. Tell us about a a director that you've had who you really enjoyed working with. I have enjoyed working with, I've talked about her on this podcast before, but, but Jules Odendahl James has been a wonderful director. And what makes her wonderful for me is that she 
allows the actors to explore in a way that feels very liberating. So she manages the process, but she doesn't impose on our process. She respects the actor's work and she will help guide us and provide us with information that we need to do our work. So there have definitely been times when I've looked at her and said, I don't know what to do. Can you tell me if I should walk over to that chair? Like, please just tell me. What am I doing here? <laughs> and she very quickly and happily steps in and she gives great notes if I'm like not being effective at all. But she also allows people to try things in this really low pressure kind of way and kind of find our feet. And I love that. She also is extremely accessible and calm and knowledgeable and she chooses people who are great to work with. That's the other thing that I think is one of her superpowers is that she builds a team that collaborates well, supports one another. There's no drama other than what we're trying to create. And so it feels like a relief to come to those rehearsals. It feels fun to be there. And the actors that she chooses are lovely to work with. It's. I think that's really, now that I'm thinking about it and I'm talking out loud, I think that's one of the greatest gifts that a director can give to the room is to, to choose people thoughtfully who are going to all add their best qualities into making something, you know? So I really, I've only ever enjoyed working with her team. That was a long answer. It was a great answer. I would speak positively about my experiences acting under David Henderson. David has this relaxed and fun style, but still very professional. All of his rehearsal schedules were released in advance, and yes. he stuck to them, and they made sense. He did a wonderful thing that I emulate in my own directing now, whereby if he wasn't using actors, he would send them off to work on their own. So, for example, when we did uh, Midsummer Night's Dream... Uh, if the fairies were called but not currently being worked with, he would send us off on our own to go practice what we wanted to practice and to help create our fairy scenes and sort of direct ourselves until it was time for us to be in front of him again. When things went wrong, he didn't freak out. I remember us having terrible mic problems in the Coca Booth Amphitheater. And instead of panicking or yelling, he sent fairies on with handheld mics <laughs> to interrupt the scenes and pass little microphones to the people in charge. He cultivated an environment where it was relaxed and fun and people talked to each other and, and joked around and nobody yelled and everybody was happy. And it was a really good introduction to theater in this specific area. He was my first director when I came to Raleigh and still one of the best that I've ever worked with. I'm so glad that you mentioned the organizational aspects, sticking to the schedule, getting information out ahead of time, making sure that everybody has what they need to uh, arrange the rest of their lives. And of course, the directors work in concert with the stage managers, but often stage managers can't do their jobs if the director doesn't have it together as well. And that's so important. One of the things that I've noticed as a producer slash artistic director that makes a big difference in how things work is email responses. If you have a director who doesn't check their email or who waits a week and a half to yeah. respond, 
to everything, everybody gets really stressed out. (laughs) And I think that they don't teach those things when we go to school, even for directing, that it's utterly crucial to respond to your emails. No one ever said that to me when I was taking my performing arts degree, but it's something that can make a big difference in whether or not your cast and crew feel taken care of and heard is a fast response time doesn't even have to be a big response. If you just send something back that says, I've read this and I'm thinking about it, it might be a while before I can give you a longer answer. Mm -hmm. That's the best possible thing that you can do. And of course, it is the hardest (laughs) thing to do. Mm -hmm. Um, Most of us are working two jobs. If you're in the arts in Raleigh, North Carolina, it's almost guaranteed that you're working at least two jobs. So I work my 40-hour-a-week job, and then I come home and do women's theater festival things. So I feel terrible about not responding to my emails in what I consider a timely fashion. And I know that when I'm in the same situation, when I'm sending emails and wondering on the other end if what I've written has been taken poorly Mm. or if they didn't get it – or anything like that, I know how important responding in a timely manner is to my emotional health. So I try my very best. But be aware that if your directors don't respond to you instantaneously, it might not necessarily be because they're horrible people. (laughs) (laughs) It probably isn't because they're horrible people. (laughs) But if you can, um, if if it's at all possible, respond to any inquiries as, as fast as possible. So I have one more thing I'd like to talk about, if it's okay with you, mm-hmm. uh, as we're as we're processing all of this directorial stuff. And that is, I wonder if it would be helpful for folks to know more about what is so hard about being a director. Because as I'm getting back into that mindset of directing, I'm now starting to think of all of the things that are so challenging in that position. <laughs> um, would you like to speak to that? Certainly. I would say that the two parts of a director's job that are the most difficult have nothing to do with art whatsoever. Um, Having an artistic vision, telling the actors where to stand, knowing how you want your play or musical to look in the end is by far the easiest part of that job. The toughest part is people and schedules. Mm. Those are the two. Because people are difficult beings. They all come in with their own baggage. They all come in with a day that they've had. They all come in with their own personalities and own personality quirks. Each of them wants to be communicated with differently. And not only do you have to manage that, but you also have to manage how everyone else in the room communicates with everyone else in the room. Um, As a teacher, we are taught classroom management skills which is making sure that you have your hands on the reins of any social group situation. And that doesn't just mean that you're in charge of how you talk to everyone in the room. You're also in charge of how everyone else talks to everyone in the room. Because if you don't create an environment where everyone feels safe, no one will come back. So it's uh, handling people is definitely the hardest part of my job, making sure that everybody's getting along. And if they're not, that I step in and resolve it in a respectful and timely manner, that I make sure that everybody feels heard, that I am well-educated 
on manners of emotional trauma, on manage manners of racial and sexual discrimination, and how I have privilege as a middle-class white woman that I need to be careful that I'm not bringing that into the room and pushing it on the other people that I'm working with. There are economic concerns. Almost everybody who is participating, particularly in a community theater situation, they're not being paid to be there. So they have to pay for childcare and gas to get to you. And if you're not treating them well, they'll never return. So people is one of the hardest parts of my job, but also schedules, because every single human in the room has uh, other appointments that they can't miss. Like I said, this is almost nobody's job in this area, and it's certainly nobody's sole job, because often actors to make a living as actors in this area have to work something else. So they've got a schedule. And if it's not for their other work, then it's for their family. And everybody's got a family or friends or a life. And you have to put it all together in a way where (laughs) when you're doing scene two, everybody in scene two can be there. Right. Or you'll find that you're repeating all of the things that you did. And that slows you down. And of course, things come up like you could have the world's most perfect schedule that everybody agreed to ahead of time, and Johnny's grandma died. What are you going to do? Yell at Johnny for his grandmother being deceased? No, he goes to the funeral and you lose a week. And that's just what happens. Um, One time last year, we had a person who got cancer in one of our productions. I mean, she had to leave. And uh, that threw a great big wrench in the works. We had to recast. People leave all the time for reasons that are both defendable and not defendable. And whether or not the reason they're leaving for is good, you still have to replace them. Mm -hmm. So it's uh, people and schedules, I would say, are the toughest part of being a director. Actually telling people where to stand and how to emote is, I would say, about 20% of my job. That's so well said. And I think those are issues or challenges that most people don't know uh, are present. And that's part of the director's job is to manage those in a way that seems so called and collected. All this is to say, it's a it's very challenging work to be the director of any size production, whether it's at the local level or something much larger. And in addition to what you said, I would add, my experience has been feelings of loneliness or isolation and imposter syndrome can be a real challenge for some of the directors that I know because you feel like it's just you up there who needs to know what's going on and um, and you are the person with whom the buck stops. And it can be, for those of us who are prone to anxiety, it can be wonderfully anxiety-inducing to feel (laughs) like you're up there and everyone suspects that you don't know what's going on or you don't know what you're going to do or they don't have confidence in you. And so what that has meant for me is that not only am I managing all of the other people in the room, but I'm also managing a great deal of myself. Hmm. And that can be challenging, especially if it's first time around. And so we all get better at this as we continue working. But I think that director support 
is also necessarily necessary. And luckily, there are people in place who can perform that, whether it's the artistic director, the producer, the stage manager. I think it's important for directors to understand that they also have support around them if they need to reach out for that. I have exactly the opposite problem. Um, people seem to think that I'm in charge of everything. Um, people will come to me and say, actually, it would make way more sense if our performance started at seven instead of eight because of uh, the kind of childcare that I need to get or because of commuting. And I'll look at them and I'll be like, what makes you think I have control over that? <laughs> I do not. That's the venue. I have no control over that. Or they'll come to me and they'll say, um, we don't think our show is being marketed very well. For example, why did this production for the Women's Theater Festival get to go on the state of things and this other production did not? And I'll be like, Frank Stacio makes those decisions. <laughs> yeah. I have no control over that. People will say to me things like, our rehearsal location is very inconvenient for me. And I'll be like, sorry. <laughs> this is the one that we were able to get for free. I have no control over that. I have a syndrome where everybody kind of assumes that I can make everything in their life better. Yeah. They just ask and they they have no um, compunction about asking. They ask all the time. <laughs> you see, it's that, thing, it's that thing that you do. You make people feel like they can talk to you, and then they do, and it's like, oh, I didn't really mean, like, everything. I just, meant, like, just wanted to have an emotional check-in, but I can't solve all the problems. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, no, people will say things to me, like, I don't really like my co-star. I, I, I think that their politics are just unacceptable and i'll be like mm-hmm mm-hmm i'm so sorry about that right. oh well right. <laughs> like let me get my magic wand out and i'll <laughs> leave it around and see if that will help sometimes yeah. they'll say things like oh the way this passage is written i i just don't dig it and i'm like copyright laws exist like the author put it that way unless we literally get their written permission after going through their agents <laughs> That's what it is, babe. Yeah. <laughs> Breathe through it. Yeah. <laughs> is there anything else that we would like to talk about related to this question? I would say when in doubt, speak out. If something happens that you are personally uncomfortable with, you saying something about it is a big deal. People will respect you for that. I think a lot of what we read in this letter was some fear about being a, a quote-unquote difficult person. Perhaps that is the way society was set up in the past. But as your writer indicated, things are changing, and I do think for the better. If you are feeling strong and brave, then if you see something, say something. And perhaps the environment in which we all live and work and create will begin to change. Thank you so much, Ashley. I really appreciate it. And now it's time for a question from a listener on Ask the Soapbox. Dear Soapy, I have a question about speaking up when I witness troubling things in rehearsal. I'm relatively new to theater, but already in my experience, I have seen people actors, designers, stage managers, shouted at and minimized, usually by the director. 
I have seen cases where people ask a question and the director treats them as though they are inconveniencing everyone and slowing things down. The person who asked the question is then considered high maintenance. I have heard it stated directly and implied indirectly that we're all adults and that the onus is on the actor, designer, crew member to speak up if they have an issue. One glance at the news headlines makes it pretty clear that for most people, it is hard to speak up against authority for a wide variety of reasons. Why does this happen? What should we do when it happens? How do we stop it from happening? I recently read this quote, When you work with human beings, being trauma-informed is not optional. I feel like people pay lip service to that notion, but I have not seen it put into practice. How can we apply a trauma-informed approach to the way we make art? Signed, Hoping for Healthier Outcomes. Hi, Elizabeth. Thank you so much for being here. I'm so glad to be here. Thanks, Tamara. Why don't we start by having you tell us a little bit about the work that you do? So I'm a trauma educator. And so one of the things that I do is help people create trauma-sensitive spaces and practices in their work and in their professional life. And so if you're a healthcare provider, that could be making sure that your um, like your intake on your on your form for a new client or a new patient would be as sensitive to someone's personal trauma as possible. Um, and if you're a health educator or someone else, that might be like, how do I make my classroom a little bit more inclusive for all the kids in the space, knowing that some of the kids in the space may have suffered from some personal trauma? Well, I appreciate you being here to respond to the questions from the listener, given your great background and the work that you do. Why don't we just dive into the first question here? Why does this happen? So when I read the question that you sent to me, I immediately thought of this as a bullying situation. And I think that may not necessarily be the place that someone else might jump to, because bullying looks different as adults, right, than it does in kids. Um, And many of us think of bullying in kids or cyberbullying in children. But when I think about behaviors like shaming or minimizing, ostracizing, punishing, outing in some way, those are very bullying behaviors. Bullying happens in a space where someone with a lot of power, right, Mm -hmm. Um, like that director, decides that their wants and needs trump other people's wants and needs. What should we do when this happens? And I'm imagining that the we is different depending on your role in the room. Mm. Yeah, it really is. And I was thinking about that too. So I think that we love to think of this idea of like active bystanders, like people who are ready to jump in at a moment's notice. And some people are more able to do that than others. When I think about folks who have been historically or economically marginalized in some way, so that could be differently abled folks, it could be LGBTQ folks, um, gosh, Native people, um, Indigenous folks in in our country um, or around the world. Those folks have traditionally had less power And so it may not feel quite as safe for them to be able to jump in and speak out and be that active bystander. So there's a, there's kind of like a a dynamic in terms of like, does it feel safe for you? And does it not? And if it doesn't feel safe, then I am always saying, don't do it. If it doesn't feel personally safe for you, whether it's like physically, like Mm -hmm. physically safe, or it feels like this is a risk me saying this thing out loud, then, then don't do it. And so for folks where it does not feel safe for them, I think about how can they talk to someone who has more power or control or is more senior, maybe is older um, than they are, something like that, like someone who has, they would think of as someone with more power, who they can then possibly talk about 
their situation, how they're feeling about the thing that's happening. So not necessarily confronting in the moment, Mm -hmm. but doing it at another time with another person. Yeah. If it feels safe to you to confront in the moment, absolutely. Yes, do that. And we can sort of talk about some language that we can do that with. But when I read the question from the listener who wrote in, it sounds as if they are someone who may be more junior and maybe not feel quite as ready to sort of jump right in and confront the director about something that's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, so for some folks, yes, like in, you know, think about in a work situation um, or like in a kind of like a corporate environment, those folks who were more senior may be more able to sort of jump right in and say something. Mm-hmm. Um, and the folks who are like, this just, it's their first job right out of college or grad school, they might feel like that's not okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so for people who it does feel safe, right? And I think about this too, like in terms of like, um, I'm a white person and I've got a lot of different privileges that sort of go along with me. You know, it's sometimes really effective for me to call out the racist piece that I see in the room as a white person, because if there's other white people who are sort of perpetuating a stereotype or something like that, they're going to be more inclined to listen to me because I'm quote unquote air quotes here like them, right? Mm-hmm. I look like them where it may not feel as safe for someone who identifies as a person of color to call out that, right? Um, so, but if it does feel safe to you, you know, you can, you can sort of say something like, I think questions about our work or our process are important. Our collective goal here is we can, is for all of us to have the best production crew, whatever the, the language is there, Mm -hmm. the, the, the goal is there. Mm -hmm. And I kind of like then leave it right there. Like it's, it's a two sentencer. And maybe I'll, if it's okay, maybe I'll like turn it back on you. Like when I say those two sentences to you, like, I think questions about our process are important because I know our collective goal here is for us to be the best crew. Right, right. Is your language more than mine Uh possible? Like, what do you hear in those two sentences? Well, it certainly does stop the escalation. Mm -hmm. It's an opportunity to take the conversation in a different direction. Yeah. Yeah, Which I appreciate because there's, it doesn't sound like, judgment necessarily just sounds like a statement of fact and also gives us the opportunity to get back in touch with our values in the room. And I think those are really easy to lose track of because often in the rehearsal space, they are assumed and not necessarily articulated. Mm. It also allows the director to give information to the actors or other staff in the room about what is happening that they might not know about. Mm-hmm. So for example, if if things are really rushed or something else has, has come up that is having the director feeling really agitated, like we need to charge forward, that sort of thing, sometimes the other people in the room are not privy to that information. Right. And it's, it's just because it just doesn't come up. So that does give an opportunity for the director to give some information about what is going on behind the scenes and maybe change course. Yeah, yeah. I appreciate that. Yeah. So there could, so there's this piece about like it could absolutely, you first started with like this de escalation piece. So there's a piece where it could absolutely de escalate things and it could go the other way if someone's feeling super defensive, even mm-hmm. about that. One thing that I like to think of with those two like really simple sentences is, we're speaking with a couple of pieces here. We're using I statements, you know, like I feel like not you over here are minimizing, right? And so then there's also a piece where we're talking to the collective, greater good here, right? Everyone is on board. We're all trying to do X, Y, and Z. So if I'm talking to the greater good benefit and I'm using an I statement, that is sometimes more of a powerful sort of entry into the mm-hmm. stopping or naming what's going on. Mm-hmm. Yes. Do you have other things related to that? 
I'm really liking, and I'm remembering what the what their last question was, and it kind of like circles back to it, it, it kind of neatly ties up a little bit about what you said with this, you know, not, not ever maybe aware of like the values that are sort of going on in the room. Yeah. So there's the, how do we stop it from happening? Like, which is the speaking up piece. And then I was thinking of like, how do we apply that trauma informed yes. approach, which they really, I love that. I love, you know, I'm in my mind, I'm calling this question or hoping because that's kind of how they signed that mm-hmm. piece. And so how do we apply this trauma informed approach to the way that we make our art? And I think that one thing we can always, always do is when we're gathering like as a group for the first time, like maybe it's a new cast coming Mm -hmm. together, we can set the tone really nicely by coming up with like, what are our, what are our kind of core values or what are the guidelines? I like, sometimes I like to call them guidelines. Um, What are the guidelines that we are going to stick to as a group? in order for everyone to kind of feel safe, heard, respected. Mm. And that is, you know, that's something we do straight away. Like when I'm, you know, working with clients or when I do this in the support group that I offer, gosh, everyone said their names and then we go right into guidelines, you know, so here's what we can kind of look, here's what we need to do in this space. And so I sort of have that as a question, like what do people in this space are all of us here? What do they need? What do y'all need in order to feel safe, heard and respected? Mm. What kind of guidelines would you set when you're meeting with a group? What are some examples? Because I think yeah. that's part of it is like, oh, what, where would we even start? Right. Yeah. And so I think it's, it totally depends on the group, right? But I think one of the things that's, it seems like it could be a universal. So I'm just going to go there with that. Something as simple as like no name calling, yeah. you know, like, or, or no slang that, you know, someone could be, you know, offended by. We have sometimes bandied around terms that have been, you know, that are that are now not okay to say, you know, or it's like that's that's such a retarded thing to do. Right. You know, so we can kind of, so maybe one of our guidelines as we kind of get this together is, you know, no name calling, no no using, you know, words to minimize someone's experience or to minimize who that person is. Right. Something around that. Right. And then maybe another guideline is questions are welcome. And and maybe maybe it's Questions are welcome when we first start our day or yes. whatever. We first start rehearsal or something like that. And maybe at the very end and maybe not in the middle of a scene, perhaps. Mm-hmm. So there's some parameters around it. So we can't like totally get off the rails all the time by people's questions. And so maybe questions come up at certain points. Right. And then maybe something else has to do with um, – I like I like always something like this idea of like keeping things confidential, you know, because you can walk out and kind of like, you know – take the story, leave the names. And that can be something that's really helpful for people to kind of feel like they're heard, especially if you know, you're dealing with people's identities and things come up and someone's like, well, I'm getting into this character because I mm-hmm. am channeling something I felt over here. Right. I'm not sure everyone would feel comfortable like walking out and be like, oh, so that's, per-, you know, right. So right. those could be a, a couple that might be um, solid points to start from. Right. Just adding layers of safety yes. to the experience. Yes. And then also... What I've discovered through this question and then through conversations with people about it is that there are so many assumptions that we make. Mm -hmm. And very often there are people who work together in many productions. And so you kind of do get a a chance to know each other really well and how you operate. And there's some shared vocabulary and understanding there. Mm -hmm. But also we are mixing and mingling with other theater workers all over the triangle. And so sometimes we don't know ahead of time, how we're used to working together and what assumptions are being made by the director. Which leads me to a question about this. I think that there is 
a general assumption that, quote, if you have a problem, you need to speak up. Mm -hmm. And I think that does make sense to the people who think that way because Mm -hmm. they think that they're creating a welcoming space. They know they feel comfortable speaking up if they have a problem. But that feels problematic to me to put the onus on the person, quote, with the problem Mm -hmm. to speak up in a way. What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, I think that's – I completely agree with you. It's also just like even (laughs) – I kind of even recoil at the language you're using, right? Mm. Like if you have a problem, you speak up. And it's like, mm. but it's not just my problem, right? I'm existing as part of a, a an ensemble, a, a, a yes. group here, right? Mm. So if I'm having an issue with something that's happening, it's going to affect my performance with all of the yes. people I'm into. I mean, with, with everybody in the lighting room. and all yeah. the, everyone, everyone yeah. in the space, mm-hmm. you know, so I think that this is a great, this is, this is how this sort of like value statement or I just even value statement, you and I kind of t- sort of talking about it that way, but something that may feel more neutral for folks is this idea of like guidelines, mm-hmm. you know, like what are, what are, what are group guidelines that feels very like <laughs> sort of neutral, not, you know, touchy feely language, and maybe everyone can get on board. Um, group guidelines, group agreements. But that's when we can sort of, you know, use those as our piece, you know. And so when something's coming up that we have we have addressed, right, we set those guidelines, we can sort of point to that piece and say, hey, let's, I need us to pause for a moment. Remember when we set these up, we said we would not be doing any name calling or we would mm-hmm. not be using this term that we all find offensive or many of us find offensive or something like that. So I think the idea also of guidelines, which I probably we need to circle back to is it it can't go into a folder you know it needs to be somewhere pretty prominently displayed not on the set but you know like whatever that space is where we are practicing and working and Mm -hmm. um and yeah being together well it could absolutely be folded into a contract yeah something around a statement of work you know Mm -hmm. so that people have those to refer to in their homes the same way they would have a contract yes it could be on a website i mean there are lots of places to put it for people to access yes. and and it also ups the commitment of the producing company to those guidelines That's you nice. know if they're out there in the world yep. for people to see it's also a col- it's like a collective good thing like even if it wasn't me who came up with guideline number 4 i see it over here and i'm also seeing that you know um alex is looking really uncomfortable about something that just happened and maybe i can say something be like remember that guideline mm-hmm. over here i just want to bring some attention to that mm-hmm. because that feels like it's a piece that's maybe not paying attention to her that we've skipped over that's not being addressed or paid attention to. So if we're in this situation in the rehearsal room, something comes up and it feels like a bullying situation, somebody speaks up to the person who is doing the minimizing, let's say, how do bullies often try to explain away or mask their behavior Mm, or justify it, you know? And then how do we... How do we continue that conversation in a way that, again, doesn't escalate it, but mm-hmm. adds some clarity to the mm-hmm. situation? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So bullying is so interesting. And and, and everything for me tends to go back to like <laughs> abuse of power and control because yeah. that's a lot of what I do. So it's a choice. People's behavior is a choice. You know, I can't control your behavior, Tamara, but I can control my own. And so bullying is absolutely a choice, whether or not I am an addict or have a mental health issue or anything else, whatever, it's still a choice. So I'm doing it because it works for me. I'm getting something from this. So I'm getting a power surge or like an adrenaline rush or something like that. It kind of minimizing you and putting you down. Right. 
because someone had maybe done that to me at one point, because I learned that that was the way that one pays their dues in this environment or whatever. There's definitely a real core piece about bullies doing this because they're getting something from it, right? And they feel like what they're getting is more important than what you might be feeling. So that's like a really, that's a big piece. So what um, really the best way to sort of like circumvent that, right, is because I can't really change I can't necessarily control the bully's behavior, but what I can try to influence is sort of what's going on in the space. And did that bully ever agree to the guidelines Mm. we set in that space? Maybe, again, how lovely of an idea this is, Tamara, that that could be folded into a contract or something else that I need to stick to, otherwise I'm out the door. So if they did, then we can kind of just gently bring us all back to that. And again, gently bring us back and thinking about, you know, here's what I'm noticing in this space. And what I really want for all of us is that we are the best blank ever. And this is taking away from that. That's kind of how that can kind of sometimes diffuse the situation. I love this point you made about bullying happens because it works. Yeah. I am very conscious that in in times of parenting, there have been moments where I've chosen to be a very scary mom and yell and have a scary mom face yep. because it was the fastest way mm-hmm. that I could get compliance mm-hmm. and it worked. It does. And it was, for me, it was really scary yeah. because I realized, wow, I have this tool. It was very efficient. I don't know if it's always going to work, but it really worked in that moment. Mm-hmm. And so now moving forward, I have to make a choice. Mm-hmm. Is it more important for me to make my children feel bad about themselves and comply so we get to where we're going on time? Or do I need to take into consideration the long-term relationship that I have with my kids and how how they're going to feel about themselves if they have a mom who yells at them Mm -hmm. when they're just being kid-like, you Mm -hmm. know? Mm -hmm. And so part of it is coming to the realization that there are also other things that work. Mm. They might not be the most obvious tool. They're not the hammer that you have on your belt all the time. You can just whip out and bang. You know, that's the easy one. Mm -hmm. But there are other tools and it takes some practice. Mm -hmm. It takes some education. It takes some experimentation, but you will get there. And Mm -hmm. there's, there is so much pressure happening in a theater space. Even if it's not on Broadway, even if it's local, there are financial pressures, there's time pressures, there are personalities that rub against one another. So there's, mm. it is a pressure cooker of a sort. Yes. And so I absolutely understand why people always go for the hammer, mm-hmm. but there are other ways. Yeah. And part of it is just realizing that. Yeah. 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 And I, and I, that's such a great analogy. And I, I've completely been that parent too. And I've been, I've made that, you know, mean mom face and, or, and, or raised my voice or probably both of them at the same time. And, um, and marveled at how effective it is. So effective that my daughter was like, one time she was like, I don't like that face. Yeah. And I was like, I don't actually like that face either. Yeah. Let's not, let's not, let's me, Elizabeth, take my space, take my, take responsibility for not, for, for using some of my other tools as you so nicely put it. And the, pieces there is that um, I think, can we speak to the greater good? Like, can we speak to like what we all want to get out of this and how this piece is taking us away from that? And can we also, I um, feel really strongly about this. Can we speak to other people's potential? Like you have the potential to be this incredible leader that we all respect Mm -hmm. 
and, um, and admire and want to work with again, you know, but this minimizes that, that makes me not want to be with you. And not that these are necessarily things that people are saying in the moment, but I'm just thinking, how can we, you know, as a community or in a space, think about how we can speak to other people's potential. Like this is where you could be, mm. you know, do you want to be this or do you want to be here? Mm-hmm. And I, you know, sometimes we ask ourselves like who, cause sort of going back to your statement, like who's the mom I want to be, right. you know, who is that person or who's the leader I want to be, you know, do we just want to slam it down or do we really want to perhaps create a different sort of long-term change with with smaller bits mm-hmm. and different tools that require, as you're saying, m- maybe more practice, more education, more experimentation, I think mm-hmm. you said. If one is in a situation, say I'm the director, and side note, I'm not a shouter. Like I don't generally shout. That is just not my thing. But some people shout. Some people have loud voices. So if I am a director who tends to go for that to marshal the troops in the room or to put people, quote, put people in their place, when I feel that impulse mm. to use that way, do you have some suggestions for that person to reroute? Like, how, how, do, you, mm. how do you interrupt that? This is a great question because I feel like I almost want to answer it like if this is the, you know, super powerful white male director who's been doing this for a really long time, this is what they should do. If this is perhaps, you know, someone who's more, you know, um, maybe more junior or, um, or or whatever, maybe answer this qu- this way. But I think it's always a good thing. And I try to do this more in my own life is to just and I, and the time constraints are, are tricky for all of us. The pressure cooker is really, can we just stop for one second, maybe two seconds? <laughs> yeah. Can we just stop for two seconds and just like take this collective, like deep breath. And maybe it's like, let's all take a deep breath together and like, let it out, yeah. you know? And I know as a parent, when I'm at that point where I want to yell a couple of times, I've said to my daughter, I've said, I'm at the point where I'd really like to yell loudly at you. Right. <laughs> and I just hoping, FYI. Just, right? FYI, just so you know where we're at. Yeah, right. um, and see if that sometimes that kind of like um like a temperature test of the room or something like that. See if that can't like de-escalate everything. Right. Um, because I think I've recently come to meditation (laughs) and I'm recognizing that some of these pieces about let's take a deep breath and like, let's calm ourselves down. And what am I noticing in myself right now just applies to so many different situations. And this is just like one of them and the parenting and everything else. So can we, can we just take a deep breath before we do the yell? Right. And then can we sort of, can we turn it around? Can we, can we even name the feeling that we're feeling without yelling. Mm -hmm. I am so frustrated that this is taking this time. What's going on? Mm -hmm. Like, can we just get curious about it? Yeah. Um, After we've maybe taken that deep breath. And maybe there's something going on with, you know, I'm going to go back to Alex. Alex over here is just not bringing it or is late with their whatever responses or whatever they're doing or there's something is off. And maybe sometimes with naming that, like I'm noticing I'm so angry and this is not going the way it is. And we are on tomorrow night or whatever the thing is. Yeah. And what's happening? What's happening? I am totally on board with the let's all take a breather because, I mean, not to keep going back to parenting, but it's just such a, <laughs> it just schools you in mm-hmm. so many different ways. But yeah. last night we had this huge Lego debacle in mm-hmm. our in our house where 
our youngest child wanted to throw the Legos. And so we decided we were done playing with Legos because that's the rule in our house. If you start throwing your toys at people, we have to put them away. So he was trying to throw the Legos. My husband and my daughter were trying to put the Legos back in the box. It was just like a Lego melee. I mean, it was Mm. crazy. Mm -hmm. And then he's screaming and then people are yelling and it was about Legos, right? So finally I said, all right, Legos down, everyone stop cleaning up. Stop, just let's all just sit here in the silence for a moment. Mm. And it was amazingly effective Mm -hmm. because we all stopped, had a conversation about how we were going to move forward instead of trying to ram it through. And then it would have taken longer ultimately anyway. I mean, it feels really inefficient to stop because we're in perpetual motion all the time. But I think overall, it saved us a lot of time and a lot of negative emotion, Mm -hmm. you know, and the Legos got cleaned up and we found a really creative way to do it when we all pretended like we were excavators and scooping up the Legos and it actually turned out to be surprisingly fun. So that's my new thing. I'm like, all right, if things are getting hot in here, just stop, stop, like freeze, right? (laughs) Lower the temperature. (laughs) Yes. Because it can, the stopping alone deescalates, right? Mm -hmm. Even if it's just in that moment. And that's the piece where that's where we want to go. We want to go the other direction. We want to, you know, ease it back down as opposed to getting, you know, hotter and angrier about right, it. Right. And if we can stop and then just, I love that. Like you stopped and we sort of paused and then maybe, maybe you kind of got curious about how can we change this? And like, let's be, let's, we're all going to pretend we're excavators and we're going to clean up that way. Right. And then. And I like this curiosity suggestion that you're making. And I think that people don't even necessarily need to say it out loud. Mm -hmm. It can be an internal process. Mm -hmm. So if you are a person who has a hard time talking about emotions, because I know that some of the, some of the folks, (laughs) it's amazing how we can be in touch with our emotions on stage, but we can't do it when we're Mm -hmm. our real selves. And so Mm -hmm. the idea of saying like, I am feeling frustrated with you Mm -hmm. is it's, it may never happen, Mm -hmm. but I can say that to myself. Mm-hmm. I can say, I am so frustrated with this person. Yep. I'm naming this. I'm curious about it. Right. And let's now figure this out. Mm-hmm. So there are lots of ways to approach this, but yes. it's really important to identify what is happening mm-hmm. and then making a choice, as you suggested yes. earlier. Yeah. So this might be a tricky question to answer, but I'll ask you anyway. <laughs> Just to summarize, say we have these two paths that we, we may go down. I'm not going to quote Robert Frost or anything at this uh-huh. particular point, but yes. we could go down the path of the sort of well-worn bullying mm. power dynamic hammer, hammer yeah. path, or we could go down this other path that we're talking about with choice and value and mm. communication and the collective and mm-hmm. that sort of thing. So when we look far down into the future, what are the potential outcomes for the people in the room, do you think? Mm. What are the potential outcomes for the people in the room based on the path that I choose? Yeah. If we fast forward into the future, how could one room be and how could the other room be? Oof. That's kind of um, sad and sort of hard all at once. Mm. Because the room with the hammer, right? The pushing it through and just like we're just freaking cleaning up these Legos and I don't care. That's the space where people feel disenfranchised. They don't feel part of a community. They feel alone and lonely. They feel misunderstood. They are more easily burned out. Their stress tolerance is much lower. They are less resilient. All of these things that happen 
when people are forced to figure it out for themselves without any kind of support. Before I get to the other room, I do want to say about the leader of that room with the hammer is they are never going to be the boss or the director that you want to work with again. They are not going to be memorable in a good way. Their uh, protégés or people in that space are never going to give them any credit for the lovely accolades that come down the road for those other people who are in this space. They are um, also going to be lonely and alone. However, the people in the in the room with the values statement on the wall, the guidelines, the people in the space where we're going to dip into our tools and we're the, the hammer's not one of them. Mm-hmm. They feel part of something that's bigger than themselves and that gives them a lot of satisfaction. They know that their words and their worth are important to the people in that space. Mm-hmm. And the leader in that space is a lovely person who I think of as an incrementalist. They are like the they're the primary care physician as opposed to the surgeon. I'm borrowing heavily from a great article that Atul Gawande wrote. Are you an incrementalist or are you a rescuer? And the incrementalist is the bit by bit. And I have a lot of tools. I'm gonna try some of them and I'm gonna notice what doesn't work and I'm gonna notice where I need some more support. The surgeon is ready to hack. Mm with the knife or the hammer. And I don't, it's not important to build a relationship with the person in front of them. They know they just got to get in and get that thing out and move on to the next person. But it's the incrementalist that we trust. And that's who we want to be with. And that's who we are happy to give credit to and to work with again. All of these things that are so important to like our health as humans, really. Thank you so much. Ah, You're so welcome. I love this conversation and I'm so grateful that you were here to put some language around things that we really need to hear. You're so welcome. Thank you for asking me. Artist Soapbox is a listener-supported podcast. Please support the podcast via our Patreon page, patreon.com slash artist soapbox. For more information, go to our website, artistsoapbox.org. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter as well. All of this information is in the show notes. Artist Soapbox music is composed by Bart Matthews. Thanks so much, and we're out.